0: Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of the EdSurge On Air podcast. I'm Jeff Young. Does higher education practice knowledge discrimination by looking down on or or even ignoring non academic kinds of learning? Peter Smith is convinced that that happens, and, and he knows higher education well. He's been president of two different colleges over his long career. In a new book, Smith argues, though, that such knowledge discrimination could be fading because of changes in in the way employers are are treating the job market and some new upstart models of education. He calls his new book Free-Range Learning in the Digital Age, The Emerging Revolution in College, Career, and Education. Smith has a unique perspective on education innovation. He's led experimental colleges, including designing and launching the Community College of Vermont back in 1970. And he was the founding president of the California State University Monterey Bay campus in 1994. And he's also been a force in politics, having served as a state senator in Vermont, the lieutenant governor there, and, and later a U.S. congressman. These days, he's back on campus as a professor of innovative practices in higher education at the University of Maryland University College. I sat down with Smith last month at the ASU GSV Summit on the Future of Education as part of our EdSurge Live video discussion series. Here are some highlights from that conversation. Uh, we're here at the ASU GSV Summit in sunny San Diego, and uh, I want to welcome our guest this half hour, Peter Smith, who is a former U.S. congressman. From Vermont, uh, founding president of universities like California State University Montere- Monterey Bay, and author of a new book, um, which I have an a early copy here Free Range Learning in the Digital Age The Emerging Revolution in College, Career, and Education. Um, thank you so much for, for well, being here.
1: Jeff, it's my pleasure, believe
0: me. Um, you've, you've had this interesting window being an innovator in education. Um, <clears throat> And then coming back into it more recently to write this book and talk Mm -hmm. to people about where things are now. Mm -hmm. So I noticed one idea that I was struck by, and there's lots of them in here, but I wanted to talk first about this idea of the networked college, which Mm -hmm. you've, I think, started talking about on your blog, but it's mentioned a little bit in here. But what do you mean by that? What is a networked college?
1: A networked college, um, think about the, the way it's been, a college is a vertical stack, and if you go back 50 or 60 years, they cooked their own food, they mowed their own lawns, they stocked their own libraries, and they controlled their own faculty, or their own faculty controlled them. And it's a, you go in here, you go up, and they control every part of the stack. Today, and then you get your degree. Today, if you think, and that college is like an oasis An information-rich oasis in an information-poor world. you got to go there to get it. Today, that desert has gone green, and there is no more oasis. It doesn't matter where you are in terms of having access to knowledge or content. It may matter where you are or what you do with it or how you get recognized for what you know. I mean, we would not want to be self-training brain surgeons, obviously. So there's ridiculous exceptions or exceptions that should be be honored. But so in the the new world where the desert has gone green, uh, you have all the... That's because of technology and technology-enhanced opportunities. Nobody can afford to be good at all the things it takes Put a first-class educational quality product out, or learning product out. So, I remember in the early part of this decade, or the last decade, when I think ten colleges got together and they were going to create their own uh, learning management system, and it just was a disaster. I think it was Sakai, right? I think that was called. Thank you. Sure. And it was a disaster, or it didn't work. It was a passive disaster <laughs> because it was nobody's first job. It was it, They just thought, oh, this is going to be easy. Then along come these other guys who say, we're going to do nothing but right. a learning management system or whatever it might be. So the networked college is, from, a, from the user experience, as different as it may be, you still, as far as you know, you're walking through the, the literal or the figurative front door, and you're taking, was Capella or uh, Purdue Global or um, um, uh, University of Maryland, University College. Sure. But behind the scenes, what you have uh, is outsource, what we would in the old days pejoratively have called outsource services, mm-hmm. because nobody can afford, you've got to decide these days what it is you're going to be really good at, and then you're going you're to contract increasingly. So first it was grounds crews, then it was... Uh, Uh, the cafeteria. Libraries are now completely different than they were, obviously, uh, even 25 years ago. So the networked college is just a term to describe not only why, which is what I've just been, why I think things have changed, but the operating reality for any college that wants to be up to date, however they define that in terms of technologically enhanced services. Uh, they're going to do it because of the they'll, they'll rise or fall on the quality of their partnerships.
0: Wow, that's a very different. I mean, I think totally the, um, I think my uh, my former colleague at the Chronicle of Higher Education, she's still there, uh, Goldie Blumstein, so yeah. called it the embedded for-profit university because there's all these different for-profits within operations within a nonprofit higher ed you'll see more institution. And
1: more, you'll see more and more of it. I believe will be nonprofit. For instance. Oh, yeah. Okay. You look at what Strata is doing now. Right. Um, Nonprofit, and they've acquired Kale and uh, whether it was Inside. um, Inside Track. Track, and what they're, and they're nonprofit, but the reason it starts in the for profit sector is because in the beginning, Mm -hmm. uh, the the academy had such a tight hold uh, through tradition and custom and governance and funding, Mm -hmm. you couldn't make the changes. And what's changed. Fundamentally, in the last 20 years, is that the drivers of the of these changes are not controlled by campuses. They're from the community around the campus. Huh. And so the so the campus cannot co-opt the language and then keep largely doing what they were doing. I see. Uh, and so you can see a place like Portfolium or Strata or Kale, but now Kale on steroids, where they can... Approach campuses with a, a value proposition. If the campus wants it, that'll be better on day one than that campus can create uh, on its own. In many, many cases.
0: And Kale is about experiential learning. right Assessment of CDA. experiential learning. Near yeah, and yep.
1: dear to my heart. I was on the founding board there. You go. Okay. Forty-eight years ago, whatever the heck it was. But <laughs> but the but the point of the point of it all is that what's changed. The reason we're here at this meeting, and the, what the venture capital has done is it's allowed people to try things that never would have been tried before because the technology didn't exist, or never been tried before because of the control that uh, the institutions had on the discourse around what is learning and what is not learning. That's all changed. And so to me, somebody said, why are you doing this stuff? And uh, I was referring to something I was doing four or five years ago. And I said, in simplest terms, Because I can. And 25 years ago, I couldn't. So the idea that you can take content to scale, you can take advising to scale, you can also personalize a thousand different ways. And so you talk about, somebody said that I had distance learning at Harvard University. I was in the back row of an undergraduate lecture. That's distance learning. Whereas today, we can have a thousand people with a thousand reasons why they want to go to school. And we can tailor curriculum to meet their needs. It doesn't mean it's different curriculum. It means that in each case, they know why they're doing it and what's in it for them. And personalization is, is not unique in terms of the content. It, it is unique in terms of my understanding of why I'm doing things. It's a, I think it's a whole new world.
0: I saw somewhere there described you as a, a sometimes friendly critic of some new models of, of education. Could you? What well, is your? What is that critique boil down to? <clears throat> I'm described uh, um, by some as occasionally
1: wrong, but never in doubt. Um, <laughs> I see. And, uh, the, 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 I think there are. Uh, I want to be as fair as I can be. Each of us comes into whatever we do for our life's choice, if we're lucky enough to have had a choice, with a predisposition. Mine is towards experiential learning. It's towards really engaging the learner in real activities and then asking them to think about those activities and, and what they learned and why it matters to them. Um, and I go out from there. I think there are, there are people, for instance, who have mistakenly thought that simply having great content was all it took. Right. And I remember one of the MOOC founders, I can't remember who, said five years later, well, MOOCs have failed as, a, as, a, as an educational experiment. And my comment to that was, they never were an educational experiment. They're just a bunch of courses by very smart people produced beautifully. What happens after that is the educational, you know, who's going to use them and what are they going to do with them and how much right. is it going to cost and what and to what effect? Um, so th- I think people who overestimate content alone come in for, you know, just sort of skepticism, shall we say, on my part. Or people that think that evaluation really is a single, single dimension judgment. I think of evaluation or assessment. Uh, of learning as being now we're on the verge of it being a pedagogy in its own right how i work with you to help you understand what you've learned how well you've learned it and what you're going to do with it hmm. and how has it changed you as a person hmm. i'm going to get what i need which is how well do you know it right but you're going to get much more than that you're going to if if i do it right and i think we're just on the verge of a whole new way what i call of, of, of assessment, if you will, being a pedagogy in its own right, a source assessment, of deep yeah. learning as opposed to a judgment that happens at the end of a sequence of courses or whatever, or classes. Um, in fine. doing the book, as I was talking to people, I had this notion that reflection is the process by which you extract meaning from experience. So I did this fine, and I did it well fine, that's an A, a B, or a C. But then, what did it mean to me? Mm. Uh, what was the most interesting? What, what am I doing with it? That's where you're reflecting, not on remembering Shakespeare, but on what Hamlet's example meant to me in my life. And so, to me, reflection becomes the key to everything. If we, if we, and I think today we can do it at, at, at scale. It isn't a matter. Of an adult sitting down with a, a young person or an old person, every you know, every time and going through a long torturous conversation, there are all
0: sorts of ways to to ask
1: people the right questions so that they report out. Anyway,
0: how do you, and how do you? I guess I was curious, like how do you get there from you know who does that? Because I think a lot of professors. Um, don't love or making up questions or quizzing students right. or, or even administering tests. It's just been something that's been part of the job, right?
1: Yeah, and and I think uh, and, and a part of the job that's been largely ignored and and overvalued in the sense of it, its impact on people and undervalued in terms of its potential to help people learn more. Um, you go right to the heart of it because this drives some professors crazy. Mm. <clears throat> but mm. if... I create, I'll create. use a traditional example. If I create a course, then as I tell you what it is I want you to be able to do to prove that you have succeeded, mm-hmm. it all depends on what kinds of questions I ask in the design, if you will, of that course. Right. If I, I want you to know accounting, but I also want you to demonstrate critical thinking. I may want you to demonstrate problem solving. Depending on the project I ask you to do, you're going to give me evidence in all three areas, as opposed to getting an A in accounting because you remembered what I taught you and you, and you did a balance sheet. Mm-hmm. So, it, it, but that goes to consistency. And that's why some faculty members, obviously the more traditional and more common, really resist uh, course design, you know, that is where you have a high level of consistency mm-hmm. across you got 100 sections of Accounting 1, and you've got the exact same course. Doesn't mean that all the teachers teach it exactly the same way, but if you have the same results that you're looking for at the end, there's a project you have to do that embraces the kinds of things I was just saying, you can then look across all 100 sections and see when is there a problem with the curriculum, when is there a problem with the learner, maybe there's a problem with the faculty member, but you can get consistent evidence about the quality of what you're doing um, precisely in a way you never could have even 10 years ago.
0: I, I wanted to ask you because a, another key part, of the title of the book is Free, ran, free Range Learning. Yeah. And it, it's it, there's some, a lot of examples you cite in here of students you interviewed and and some innovators that are trying new ideas. And um, there was a, a book that came out several years ago, I think it was by Anya Kamen, who had a similar yeah. argument about the DIY, I actually, that you cited her. Yes. And. I guess one thing, though, as watching this space and being really curious about it, but it seems like it feels to me even today like some of these examples are outliers. And I guess, uh, do you think we're getting to a point where it seems like students still kind of want to go through a structured process instead of just having to <clears throat> figure it out on their own? Oh, I, I like I, taking a MOOC here and then getting credit and taking a, a straighter line course. Or oh, not to pick on any one of the examples you mentioned, but so do you think we're really going to get to a, a free range learning? No. Or ha-
1: no, uh, and and what I was talking about, or what I intended with the title, is that what is possible now is learning anytime, anywhere, I for see. anybody. I see. Now, my metaphor for that is it's a little bit today, it's, and I think has been, but more so than ever. It's like skiing in a blizzard with no goggles. Mm-hmm. You know, it's woo, 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 because you've got all these resources around, but you don't know how to organize them. Mm-hmm. So the notion simply is that. Where learning happens, how it happens, how it's recognized, how it is supported, and how it is connected to work or whatever is important to me as a person has changed dramatically. I see. And we are in a world of multiple new models. I do not think, um, and the work I've done in the last 20 years on on online or technologically enhanced learning um, suggests that fewer than 10% of the people who are learners um, are able to self-direct. Uh-huh. Uh, really, more like four uh, percent. But what we can do is, and the third section is called the GPS for learning and work, uh-huh. where you know we can sit in a car and say, "I want to go to grandma's," and it'll tell us the fast way, and the slow way, and the and the scenic route. Well, this is all a little more complicated than going to grandma's. But <laughs> but what's possible today, and people here at ASU GSV are working on it, uh-huh. is is. To say here's where I am, my knowledge, skills, abilities, and my aspirations. Here's where I want to go. Mm-hmm. Here's the gap. Here are the resources I need to fill the gap. I and I can choose my setting, group, or independent study, or this or that. And what will happen is that as people see these things, I think markets will emerge. I mean, uh, demand call it market is sort of businessy term for me, but and people will. Then organize, so I say, there's not going to be any one institutional model, but there will be characteristics that are common, good assessment, good advising, access to information, uh, tremendous uh, interpretation of how you're doing on, on a daily basis, you know, and saying, people who do what you did in the last three days generally fail this course, so how can I help you? Mm-hmm. And detecting behavior patterns. Uh, those are things machines can do. And what happens then is people are freed up to do what only people can do, because learning at the end of the day is a social activity. So the, the whole point, and, and the edupunks, Anya's work, was critically important because it, whether I liked the term or not, or the recreational aspect of learning that it suggested, she was right on the money that a whole bunch of things are possible today, that weren't possible 10 years ago. I think it's even more true now, eight or nine years later. But it, it isn't just a recreational activity. Uh-huh. And so I used uh, the title to suggest the opportunity, the, the, the situation from which huge new educational learning and employment opportunities can be derived. and and so it's not the free range is not the state the free range is where we're at now but it's completely crazy and disorganized and skiing in a blizzard with no goggles so the role for the new institution is to make sense out of that world and and help the learner um, figure out what they want and how they're going to get it and the mode they want and I think you talked to a a, retire- I mean, a, a worker who is 52, what they want in terms of higher education is very different than what I may have thought I wanted when I was 18. And now we can really craft educational solutions to personal situations.
0: Back in the '70s, you started the two-year college in Vermont. Mm-hmm. Um, the, you mentioned Cal State Monterey Bay, mm-hmm. founding president. You've you've been in, involved for so long in watching higher ed kind yeah. of and yeah. being involved in innovative efforts. But what do you think the appetite for for that is? How is the appetite in higher ed among maybe your colleagues or the the this culture of higher ed? How has it changed, if at all, in that time? In the I, last 30 I think forty years, I think the
1: world is flattening in another way. I think the the elite colleges which uh, really held sway in terms of dictating norms and standards mm-hmm. um, in the 60, 50s and 60s. I mean, you know, remember, and I'm going to say it was 1940, 4% of the American population had a baccalaureate
0: degree. It was an elite thing to go get yeah. a, a two-year, so, four-year degree. Yeah. So
1: I think, and when I started the community college, there were faculty members at the University of Vermont who would tell me to my face, you are destroying higher education. Hmm. So there was, even in the early 70s and 70s, there was this heavy, heavy burden placed by the way we do things. Hmm. I think that has flattened out enormously. <clears throat> and I think, I think the real, the interesting thing is that now that the drivers have changed are not controlled by campuses, it's going to flatten out more. The big change won't come at Princeton or UVA or the University of Vermont, per se, the big change will come with the 60% of the people out there that might have liked to take a whack at advanced learning and couldn't do it for economic or personal or, or, or frankly, gender or racial reasons. And, and so to me, the, the huge opportunity exists, as it did before the community colleges, the big opportunity existed with people who simply couldn't afford to go to college and not work. And that was a new, a new, if you will, population. And today I see yet another new. So there's two uh, impacts. One is on the way existing institutions do business, uh-huh. and that's going to change. In many cases, I've just heard for the first time of a college using its endowment to erase all student debt, uh, so that need-blind admission becomes need-blind graduation. The day you graduate. Hmm. All your debts are paid oh, where was that Princeton yeah. actually okay it blew me away well they got the endowment to do it but what they now what are the terms and conditions I don't know that but what I, what I, and I understand um, physicians and surgeons at Columbia uh, Graduate School Medical School may be doing the same thing <clears throat> they can afford it but what they're seeing is that if they want to diversify their student body mm-hmm. by admitting very uh, diverse very smart people, or very capable, traditional, academically capable people, they've gotta do something at the other end. That's a big change, that's mm-hmm. a big change, and I think other colleges will, somebody's gonna to have to start, that's gonna become a competitive factor.
0: Yeah, and what have you learned? You know, but also <laughs> your own question to yourself, right, that you're hoping colleges will press students to do, but from from all your work in this, and from now that you finished this book research, what has struck you, or surprised you? Well. I
1: think, and I, I cannot avoid saying I've been very, very affected, one, by the interviews, the real-time power of people who have simply, um, as I, I, learned, I learned a new definition of privilege. I'm a privileged person, and what I learned from this is real privilege is never losing a fight that you didn't pick. I've lost some fights in my life, but I picked every one of them. <laughs> Whereas for most people, they're losing fights every day. They never asked for, mm. and that to me is the fairness of divi- the division in the society. And I learned that very powerfully. And then we had Black Lives Matter and #MeToo and um, and uh, the, the gun thing, which is near and dear to my heart for other reasons. That but seeing that if you can intellectually understand and, and sympathize and support. But if I've never walked in your shoes,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I can't I can't make up for that. It doesn't mean I it, but don't be confused. Or the the issue in the Starbucks recently in um, Philadelphia. We're beginning to really understand the things that happen to some people every day in this world mm-hmm. that we walk right by because it doesn't happen to us. Mm-hmm. So to me it the power the drama in education and learning comes from inside the learner and their interaction with the world. And that to me is a total flip from the drama in education is I got a great professor who's gonna lecture me on Hamlet. Um, no, uh, that, that's, that's something else. So my big learning was how intense, the more personal we make this in terms of, and we can do it at scale now with technology. That's what technology can do, it lets us be real people and be more full as people, as teachers, as counselors, as supporters. That's what really um, changed me as I researched this book, is that the need that we have as a society, whether it's an employment need or a community need or a social need or you name it need, is intensely personal to the person who has the need, and that's what we need to focus on. It isn't about the top 200 colleges, it's about the 60% who, are, who, who, who never have a chance to choose what they want to do if, when it comes to learning. I want everybody to
0: have the chance to choose. I have a, like we have like two minutes left, but are you, can I ask your position on the free college movement? I think, um,
1: I, I admit to a bias in this in the sense that, uh, um, My youngest son uh, is in the governor's cabinet in Tennessee. Okay. um, And uh, fought for that policy for community college. I think it's brilliant. And and it isn't, um, I'm not sure I can go where Bernie and Elizabeth Warren have gone um, for a variety of reasons, although I think the instinct everybody's got to have some skin in the game, whether that's money. Now, but what we're ignoring is my time, my aspirations. My, my hopes for my own future, that's skin in the game. And what they're finding in Tennessee, or last time I checked, is that in the ninth and tenth grade, when decisions are made, the decision-making pattern changed overnight hmm. for young men and women who saw that now they could go to that local community college. From the state's perspective, it's a great social investment for economic development. And, now, and, and so I think the argument about whether it's free or not is less, is only part of the story. It's what happens to the community as a whole, to the economic vitality of the community, to the social vitality of the community, and what's a cost and what's a price. Uh, In general, um, learning is hard enough without a whole lot of other encumbrances. So I I would, I'm not sure free all the time, but, um, but not having to worry People leave school because they, they're afraid of debt. That's not acceptable. And it isn't you and me. Right. It's it's people you never see. And and I would like to make sure that never
0: happens again. Well, thanks so much for sharing your, yeah, your you, thoughts Jeff. with us today. I really thanks appreciate so it. Good to meet you. Ed Surge, how are you doing? <laughs> thanks. Good. <laughs> thanks. This has been a bonus episode of the Ed Surge On Air podcast. As regular listeners know, we usually drop a new episode every Tuesday, but uh, we, we're so eager to share some of these interviews we did in our series at ASUGSV that um, we're we're sort of adding some bonus episodes over the next few weeks. So, so stay tuned for those. You can listen to this podcast on just about any podcast app. And please take a minute to leave us a rating there. We'll be back next week with another conversation about the future of education. Thanks for listening.